In the 1980s, some documents were released that appeared to be a top-secret briefing for an American president concerning the truth about alien technology and aliens that were recovered from the Roswell crash in 1947. If this was true, it would be bizarre and alarming. And as we'll see, if it was an elaborate hoax, that would also be bizarre and alarming. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and not with me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hey, Nathan. I'm sorry not to be there with you. It's all your fault, though, because you're horrendously sick. So yeah. we have to do it online, unfortunately. Yeah. It's it's making me remember the days of lockdown and pandemic. I was having a little bit of PTSD when you sent me the Zoom link. I was right. Like, no, like, not oh, again. Not Zoom. Stuck at home again. But here we are. But that feeling of dread that you have. Yeah. That feeling of, of something being wrong, that feeling of imminent catastrophe, let's use it. This is Nathan Segway Radke right here. You're yeah. seeing it live. It's happening right now. Okay, let's do it. Yeah. Let's feel uncomfortable about our topic today. Yes, because this is part of a larger project that we've been doing, which is what is the story of UFOs and aliens in the second half of the 20th century? How did it start? Where did it go? What are some of the weird turns it's taken? And already it's taken some pretty weird turns. I'm going to quickly recap what we've got. 1940s, okay. the modern UFO myth shows up on the scene with, of course, Kenneth Arnold seeing something weird in the sky. He says mm -hmm. they move like saucers skipping across a lake. A journalist sort of misinterprets that. And that's where we get the idea of flying saucer. In those early days, there was a lot of worry about, are these flying saucer things, are they Soviet? It was the, also the early days of the Cold War. But soon we start to see this idea that these UFOs are actually extraterrestrial. And we see things like Project Blue Book, official Air Force investigations into that possibility. It's a possibility that people were taking seriously back then. But in the pop culture, we also see ideas start to form about what this means. And in the early days, in the 50s, I feel like there are two main stories. One, the aliens are a threat. They're going to invade us. And the thing that's going to save us is the government. And we see this in all sorts of movies like Earth versus the Flying Saucer. You've got attacking aliens, and then the military, the government, fight back against them and defeat them. So that's one of the themes that you see early on. The other one is interesting. The other one is that the aliens aren't here to attack us and invade us. The aliens are here to help us, protect us from ourselves that it's the world governments and the nuclear arms race, that's the threat, and the aliens are coming down to say, hey, if you guys don't watch this, you're in big trouble. They're like the cosmic cops. That's right, but you failed to mention that they wear ski suits. And they wear was ski a very, suits. Yes, and uh, they take people out for lunch sometimes. Yeah, they, yeah, they meet in Venus. diners. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so in the 50s, we have all these stories of people being like, oh, yeah, I encountered this alien and we went to this diner and he warned me about nuclear weapons. And it's all pretty hilarious and hokey. In the 60s, things start to get a little bit darker. We start to see not being contacted by, by aliens, but being abducted by aliens. Betty and Barney Hill are taken from their car in the middle of the night. They have missing time. They get hypnotized. They remember this sort of frightening story. And then in the 70s, things go really dark because 
now we've got all of these fears in society about the dangers of government, about the dangers of satanic groups and cults. And now the aliens are associated with things like cattle mutilation. And we're starting to get darker, we're starting to get more twisted, we're starting to get more disturbing. But I bet we could get more disturbing still. Oh yeah. Because what's For missing sure. so far from the story, either the aliens are good guys to save us from the government, or the government's the good guys to save us from the aliens. But what about the possibility that there are no good guys, and the aliens and the government are working together? Yeah, that's right. We find ourselves now at the end of the 70s, and that's where I'm going to pick up this narrative and add the next layer of the UFO, the modern UFO mythology. The secret government element, the potential that the aliens are here working with the government, but against us. The government is keeping this stuff a secret from us. There is conspiracy to keep the aliens hidden. And that's what we want to look at now. The evidence that was brought forth in the 80s to suggest that this was, in fact, the case. To start this story, I'm going to begin with a whistleblower. His name is Victor Marchetti. In the 1960s, he is a special assistant to the deputy director of the CIA. Okay. Now, in 1966, Marchetti resigns from the CIA. Now, it's not clear why, but he turns around and becomes a real vocal critic of the CIA. He spills the beans on a bunch of stuff. And in fact, he writes a kind of tell-all book called The Cult of Intelligence. But apparently, it is the only book in modern uh, U.S. history that the United States government actually tried to censor. They took him to court. They tried to get a whole bunch of passages redacted. Not all were, and the book was eventually released. And if you're writing a book like that, I feel like that's exactly what you want to have happen. Yeah. Because well, you, you can't buy publicity that good. In 1979, Marchetti gives an interview to a magazine called Second Look Magazine. Basically, in this interview, Marchetti theorizes what would happen if the U.S. government, the CIA in particular, discovered intelligent extraterrestrials were visiting Earth. He's not saying this is happening, but he is developing a thought experiment in which he wonders or gives insight into what he thinks the U.S. government would do, the CIA specifically. What would they do? There's essentially five steps. So I've, I've summarized these five steps about what Marchetti suggests the CIA would do if they knew that extraterrestrials were visiting Earth. Step one, Marchetti says the first order of business would be to assess whether this was in fact extraterrestrial or not maybe Soviet technology. Step two would be to assess their weapon capability if they are, in fact, extraterrestrial. Step two is to assess their weapon capability and seek alliances with other governments because this is not going to be just a U.S. phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. The U.S. will take the lead, but they'll want cooperation, certainly from allies. You're thinking England, Germany, places like that. But also, Marchetti suggests that if it's really serious, there might also be cooperation with the KGB and the Soviet Union. That's always been part of the alien narrative as well. The idea that 
if we encountered aliens, then the, the different nations of Earth would realize why we're not so different, you and I, and we would be able to come together and, and put away our small little human differences. In fact, one of the first UFO novels is based on that idea that a bunch of high-ranking scientists all come together, fake a UFO attack in order to bring countries together and end the Cold War. Nothing brings you together like a common enemy. And instead of then having the other guys be your enemy, if the enemy is extraterrestrial, then we can unite as a global front of humanity, I and, guess. And then we can fight later once the aliens are gone. Right, exactly. Step three, Marchetti says, would be to generate cooperation among governments to keep the UFO secret. Marchetti assumes that revealing the existence of extraterrestrials would cause a mass panic. It would undermine existing authority structures. Well, I, I think in part I, of it is that we have these sort of traditional ideas and we've based our society around them. And one of the traditional ideas we have is very human-centric idea of, say, religion. You know, God cares about humans, and God has made the earth for the humans, and so if all these other aliens show up in other places, I think one argument is that we're going to have to take a really strong look at religion. And as you know, as somebody who studies Durkheim, if something as important as religion gets a shake-up in your society, it's going to cause some chaos. That is true, and yet this challenge to religious orthodoxy has been happening certainly in the Western tradition for the last 500 years, and it has caused shakeups, but not the way that Marchetti is envisioning a kind of global collapse. Mm -hmm. He seems to think that if we discovered that aliens were in fact real, we would stop paying our taxes, light schools on fire, you know, everything would totally disintegrate. And this is a theory that actually a lot of my students come up with. Like when I ask, like, why would we want to even keep this a secret? What's the point of keeping it a secret? The answer is, well, it would cause mass panic. Often that's not further elaborated. And, and Marchetti certainly seems to be operating from this position. And so for him, step three would be that governments would organize to keep this a secret from humanity at large. Step four is if the aliens are nice, maybe we'll tell the public, but Marchetti thinks that this will probably not happen because we're interested in maintaining traditional power structures and authority. And so instead we'll actually engage in a full-scale cover-up. We'll do this through step five, which is to set up bogus investigations, panels, inquiries and reports, things like Project Sign and Blue Book. The Condon um, Report. That all come to the conclusion that, okay, there's nothing really here. We've done our due diligence. We've really investigated this, and there's nothing to see here. This is what Marchetti says would happen if aliens were discovered to be actually contacting us, landing here, and they were intelligent, space-faring beings. <laughs> At the end of the 70s, we have this sinister worry that the government isn't here to protect us. The government is in on whatever plot is happening. And they don't trust us enough or think highly enough of us to give us the truth. Exactly. They're all, they're all Jack Nicholson and a few good men yelling at us saying yeah, yeah, you can't, you handle, can't the truth. handle the truth. Exactly. That's the government. Which is more to the point is that the worry... For Marchetti and other theorists of this ilk 
is that actually the worry is that it would undermine the existing power structures. And so they're acting from a very self-interested perspective where they just want to be in power and aliens and imminent climate change and all the revelations of these secret conspiracies would fundamentally undermine that power structure. So that has set the scene for a major reveal not quite a decade out from Marchetti's interview. In 1988, there are some documents. They are sitting right in front of me. Nathan, I think you have a copy at the bunker. And there's a set of documents that emerge that are internal U.S. documents that seem to validate exactly what Marchetti was saying. Now, I went to the FBI website, and here's what the FBI website has to say about these documents. And I'm going to quote here. In 1988, two FBI offices received similar versions of a memo titled Operation Majestic 12, claiming to be highly classified government documents. The memo appeared to be a briefing for newly elected President Eisenhower on a secret committee created to exploit a recovery of an extraterrestrial aircraft and cover up this work from public examination. So I'm in fact going to read from the first page of these documents of the MJ-12 or Majestic or to a lesser extent Magic 12 document. Operation Majestic 12 is a top secret research and development intelligence operation. Majestic 12 Group was established by a special classified executive order of President Truman on the 24th of September, 1947, upon recommendation by Dr. Vannevar Bush and Secretary James Forstall. Okay, so what we have here is a leaked internal briefing memo for the incoming President Eisenhower. So the way this is supposed to work is that there's been an election, you've got the new president coming in, and they really need to know what's going on. You know, at this point, they've got all the top security clearances. They're the commander in chief of the most powerful nation on earth. This is the time they get filled in on what's going on. And this is, in fact, a real practice, like the CIA and other organizations within the United States will prepare briefing documents for the president, the incoming president. They have chats with them, they explain what the situation is, they give them the dirt. And the idea here is that the MJ-12 briefing memo is a summary of this executive order by President Truman, who after the Roswell crash created a group of top military, intelligence, and science experts, a secret committee who would be responsible for dealing with the wreckage, dealing with the aliens, and dealing with the cover-up that, again, Marchetti said would be part and parcel of any actual contact. Now, because this all comes in response to the Roswell crash, we should take a couple of seconds, and I'll let Nathan talk again because he's been sitting there quietly just nodding his head. Nathan, Which is always a good way to contribute to a podcast. Head nodding, I think, is one of the finest aspects of a podcast. Well, it's, it's, it's been making me feel very confident about the narrative. Nathan, what was Roswell? In June of 1947, that's when the flying saucer thing takes off, because, of course, 
That is when Kenneth Arnold sees the strange objects. But just a month after that, something very strange happens. In Roswell, New Mexico, something crashes in a farmer's field. And there is an official statement from the Roswell Army Airfield. And what they say is that they have recovered a, quote, flying disc, end quote. And so, of course, that's, that is shocking. Like, that is the actual thing that the, that the military says about this incident. They're like, oh, no, we got a flying disc. And people say, wait, what? You've got a what now? And then they say, I mean, a weather balloon. Now, this was the 40s. People still trusted the government. And so when the government says, no, it was actually a weather, a weather balloon, people, for the most part, go, okay. And it's kind of forgotten after that. It's kind of forgotten until the late 70s. Now, I'll go into more detail into this story a little later in this episode, because I don't want any spoilers here. But that's the basic stuff that you need to know. Something crashes at Roswell, New Mexico. The government says it's a flying disc. And then they say, no, it's just a weather balloon. The MJ-12 document suggests that what crashed was a flying saucer. And not only was a flying saucer recovered, but also bodies of the occupants were recovered. And it was determined that these are not humans or anything emerging from Earth. These are extraterrestrials. The MJ-12 documents go on to suggest then that at the time of the Roswell crash, it was President Harry Truman who was in office. And the way Harry Truman chose to deal with this was to create this secret organization called MJ-12, as I said, made up of top military intelligence and scientists. And their job was to deal with all aspects of contact, specifically get the wreckage, ship it off to a secret American military base, reverse engineer the technology, and also create a cover-up in which things like, hey, tell them it's a, tell them it's a weather balloon. Don't say it's a disc. That kind of stuff would have emanated somewhere from MJ-12, maybe not the top people there, but their functionaries, you know, organize a cover-up. We can't let the people know. So, so, so here, then this, this memo is a bombshell. This memo is the proof. I mean, this is, again, like, I, I, I want to like kind of pound my fists on my desk here. This is the kind of stuff we want in conspiracy research. The reason I feel really confident that an outrageous operation like MK Ultra actually happened is because we have the internal CIA documents, you know, funding requests and the scope of the project and the various sub-projects. We have their documents. We've, we've, we've got, got names. We've got names that are attached to these projects. We have the code right. names of these projects. Like we have all of this information, all of the bureaucratic stuff, which is exactly. agony to go through. Yes, but super but important. It's, but it's 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 really legit at that point. Same thing with COINTELPRO or lots of other conspiracies where Nathan and I feel very confident that the conspiracy is as the conspiracy says, you know, that it really is the thing that we think it is. It's because we don't just have an eyewitness. We don't just have a whistleblower. We've actually got the internal documents to go along with it. We got a paper trail. So if this is legit, this is a huge bombshell. And, and that is why the MJ-12 document made such a splash 
for the UFO community and the conspiracy community at large. And it seems to go again hand in hand now with what the whistleblower insider from the CIA said would happen. We have this guy saying, look, this is what's going to happen if, if this were real. I don't know if it's real. It wasn't my area. But if it were, this is what we would do. And then we get the MJ-12 documents that show this is what we did. And at this point in history, the American public has kind of gotten used to this because there have been these things that have been exposed. There has been I, COINTELPRO and MK Ultra, And this is how they get exposed. Iran Contra, like yep. it just keeps going. It doesn't get any better in the 80s. We're just used to it more. Yeah. So the American public is now sort of ready to say, oh, here's some more leaked stuff that shows that the government is up to some seriously shady shenanigans. And in this case, it's not secret like surveillance programs. It, it's not uh, LSD mind control. It's not selling weapons to the Iranians. Now it's aliens. So here's another quote from the MJ-12 briefing document. On the 7th of July, 1947, a secret operation was begun to assure recovery of the wreckage of this object for scientific study. During the course of this operation, aerial reconnaissance discovered that four human-like beings had apparently ejected from the craft at some point before it exploded. I mean, this is exactly what the UFO community says was happening. We've got an insider, we've got the documents, and it's, it's, it's shocking because not only do they have technology, but they, the, 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 the recovered beings uh, from this crash are not alive. From a later crash, they do uh, recover a living alien, which they term an EBE, or extraterrestrial biological entity. Should be noted that the briefing the MJ-12 documents do give the names of the MJ-12 committee members. These are people who really do exist and are yeah. quite well known. Vannevar Bush is one of them. General Nathan Twining is another. And you, you can find these people on Wikipedia. They've got huge entries. They, they were, again, really top in their field. Vannevar Bush was you know, an engineer, held a bunch of patents, so he would have been one of the scientists on the panel. By the time of the document's leak, all of the people named in the document had passed. Mm -hmm. So you, there wasn't anybody you could actually talk to to confirm this, not that they would. So I wanted to go back to the timeline. And I read something from the FBI website that said that the FBI got the documents in 1988. People were worried that secret documents were being circulated, so they sent them to the FBI for confirmation. But 1988 is when the FBI gets the documents. The documents, however, were actually made public in 1987, specifically on May 29th, 1987. So I thought we should look at who were the original people who made these documents available to the public, how did they get the documents and why did they release them? So the cast of characters we're dealing with now, and I'll talk about them all in more detail later on, we have Bill Moore, who is a member of ARPO, and we've encountered them a number of times in the last couple of episodes that we've traced this. A civilian mythology. UFO research organization. Exactly, known as the Aerial Phenomena Research Program. We have Stanton T. Friedman, who is a nuclear physicist 
and we have Jamie Shandera, who is a TV producer. They are the ones who are in possession in 1987. They are in possession of the MJ-12 documents, and they release them. According to Moore, his buddy Jamie Shandera receives a manila envelope with no return address, no indications of who it's from, and inside the envelope is a canister of undeveloped film. I mean, this is some classic Moore, spy movie stuff. Right? This is great. I mean, this is exactly what you want. When Moore and Shandera develop the film, what they are seeing are pictures of a secret document, and this secret document is the MJ-12 document. And it's also why when you now try and get a copy of the MJ-12 document, it's not great quality. Like you would want a nice PDF with, with, with clean lines, but no, because what you're getting is a copy of a picture that was taken of the original document. Rather responsibly, I think, Moore and Shandera don't release it in 1984. They decide to hold it back because they're not entirely sure of the authenticity of this. They want to kind of investigate this further. Jamie Shandera is a TV producer, but he's working on a lot of documentary kind of stuff. Arpo is in the UFO world a rather more skeptical outfit. And so they're not going, they were the ones who didn't like all the contactee stuff in right. the in the 60s. They were kind of annoyed at, at it. All so the silver jumpsuits were a bit too hokey. Right. So they're taking a conservative approach here to try and see what they can do to verify these documents. Now, in the course of 1985, Moore, Shandera, and their buddy Friedman uh, receive more anonymous information. And this leads them to a confirming piece of information that they discover in the National Archives. They discover a misfiled memo. This is a memo written by Robert Coulter, who was assistant to President Eisenhower. Now, of course, we know the MJ-12 uh, briefing document is intended for Eisenhower. So now we have Eisenhower's assistant writes to General Twining. If you remember, he was one of the two names that I read out as being a member of MJ-12. I said Vannevar Bush, but also General Twining. Now, the what's known as the Coulter Twining Memo, in this memo, there is a mention of MJ-12. And Moore and Danton Friedman and Shandera discovered this memo in the National Archives. And now they feel like they've got, you know, they've hit pay dirt and they've got something to go on. Again, I like this as a strategy for research. This is what so we you do. have a doc. Exactly. Right. You have a document. OK, who knows if the document's legit or not? I mean, it's better than no document. But what you really want is some kind of supporting something, another document. So we have a mention in the culture twining memo of MJ-12. We have the document itself, the MJ-12 document, which really outlines the fact that there is a secret cabal within the American government whose job it is to keep extraterrestrial secret and to recover their crafts, deal with the aliens, the whole thing. And of course, we had the whistleblower. Now, why do they release it? It turns out that the MJ-12 documents 
they were first mailed to Jamie Shandera in 1984. Because they don't release them, they are eventually mailed to other journalists, specifically ones in the UK. Hearing this, Moore, Shandera, and Friedman decide they don't want to be outdone. I mean, they are sitting on the discovery of a lifetime. And so they decide to release the document. But in 1988, Moore and Shandera actually appear on a live US TV show, which was really hyped up. And the show was called UFO Cover-Up Live. And again, you can see a lot of it on YouTube if you search it. Now, not to correct you, this is a rare correction that I'm yes. doing. Wasn't it okay, UFO okay. cover-up question mark, live exclamation mark? Oh, but but the, the listeners paying attention could hear the question mark and the exclamation mark. I think you needed to make in, that more in clear in your, in your intonation. <laughs> now, I watched this in my research leading up to this, and it in fact shows Moore and Shandera there with some contacts who they have now traced, who are the kind of they call them deep throat insiders of the government who are revealing this information. And that's, of course, those a reference to the Watergate whistleblower who called himself deep throat. Exactly. And those contacts are actually, I mean, they're, they're blacked out, their voices are changed, but they also confirm that these documents are real and that this is actually happening. Now, as I said, I saw this show on my research leading up to this. It turns out your audience members, we have somebody who back in 1988, as a young, young man, was it? A no, young I was kid, a kid. You were a kid sitting on the couch in your parents' home, actually watched this live, right? Yeah, yeah. And there was a couple reasons why I watched it. I watched it because it was about UFOs. And I also watched it because the host was an actor named Mike Farrell. From MASH. Who was BJ Honeycutt from MASH. And I, as a kid, I was a big MASH fan. So I was like, oh, Hey, it's BJ. I trust BJ. He seems like a good doctor on MASH. He's probably going to do a good job of this. And so, yeah. Uh, and this was at a time when, like, there weren't hundreds of channels. There was, like, three or four channels. And so yeah. for something like this to be on TV means that it's going to get a good percentage of eyeballs on it. And two of those eyeballs belong to me as a little kid. First time in history, men and women from all over the world come together via satellite to share their experiences about unidentified flying objects. Live from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., LBS presents, in association with Seligman Productions, UFO Cover-Up, live. I remember thinking, oh man, this is, it's all true, the aliens are real, and then my parents saying, don't necessarily believe everything you see on TV. Young Nathan. Right. The whole thing leaves you with the impression that, well, again, I mean, there's something to this. Yeah, it has that feeling of we've got an unraveling scandal. Like we've got the whistleblowing, we've got the people coming forward, we've got the paper trail, we've got the cooperation. Like this is clearly, it's snowballing, it's turning into a thing. This is going to be one of those moments where we learn the truth about something. That's what it feels like at this point. Well, and it does turn into a big thing among the UFO community, and it actually spills out beyond the UFO community into other conspiratorial communities. I'll give you an example of where this sort of thing can show up, how this, this Majestic 12 can sort of spiral off into other conspiracy theories. 
there were people making the argument, for example, that the reason that the American government murdered Kennedy is that Kennedy was going to do disclosure on this, that Kennedy was going to come forward and he was going to admit this whole program. He was going to talk about the alien situation. And so people made the, the assumption that, oh, this, is, this must be why JFK was shot, because yeah. he was going to talk about Majestic 12. Well, and you bring up a really important concept here, which we should have maybe mentioned earlier in the show, that of disclosure. What does disclosure mean within the UFO community? Disclosure is when the government admits the truth about UFOs, that they have actually known far more than they've been letting on. Perhaps they've even made contact. And this is a big thing in the UFO community, that people are demanding disclosure and anticipating disclosure. Uh, especially for the last few years when we've had this situation where the Pentagon has been putting out videos and saying, yeah, to be honest, we don't know what these things are that our fighter planes are chasing. This, in the UFO community, has gotten people thinking, this is it. Finally, we're going to get disclosure. Right. And in 1987-1988, it looked like we had disclosure because we had all the elements. And if this had been any other conspiracy, I might have already left it here because it has all the markings of something that's legit. As it it we appears kept to. Saying. It appears to. Well, it seems like we have all the elements. How could we move forward to try and analyze this more deeply? Well, this and is where we have to get into the details. This is where we have to become sticklers. Exactly. But let me give you the analogy that I came up with for this kind of work. There's a job out there of forensic fire analysis. Now, I don't even know if that is the actual job title, but there are house fires that happen. And I'm guessing that most of those house fires happen for some accidental reason, an electrical short or somebody doesn't put out a cigarette or, you know, they didn't set the fire on purpose. But of course, there are some fires that are set on purpose. And this is really important for insurance companies to figure out which is this fire that the claimant has put in a claim for, because that is a version of insurance fraud, is if you want a bunch of money, you set your house on fire and you claim that all these valuable things were destroyed, and then the insurance company has to give you money. But not if you set the fire yourself. Then they don't, not only do they not give you money, but you get into big trouble. Now, I've been in a couple of burned out buildings, you know, I had a wayward youth and uh, I didn't set those fires, but I went, you know, those were cool places to go when you wanted to escape your parents and you wanted to go to kind of like a shady, scary, cool place. And I got to tell you, I can't make heads or tails out of anything. I mean, I can, I can tell you that it probably was on fire because of the burn marks or whatever, but I can't tell you where the fire started what the accelerant was, was it an electrical fire? Was it a chemical fire? Was it started on the second floor or did it start in the basement? I certainly wouldn't be able to tell you things like whether it was set deliberately or it was an accident or any of those things. But there are people who can do that. And not only can they do that, I'm pretty sure that if they're facing an amateur arsonist, they're gonna tell really quickly whether this fire was set deliberately or was indeed an accident. That's the kind of work of forensics. That's the analogy I want to bring to the work around documents, because for non-experts among us, 
an official document looks like any other official document. And the MJ-12 document looks darn official. It's got all the obvious markings of an official document with top secret, magic eyes only written across the top, and then certain kind of other insignias with um, a checklist and this and that, which really is what an official document looks like. But what does an, a forensic analysis of a document like this reveal? Well, Philip J. Class is a UFO researcher. He is a skeptical one, and but a he's not one. a skeptical... He's skeptical and cranky, but he's not as skeptical as some people are. He, though, takes a very close look at the MJ-12 documents, and he publishes his findings in a bunch of different outlets, including Skeptical Inquirer. He notes that there are a number of really big errors with the MJ-12 document that lead him and most other researchers who've looked at this to conclude that the document is in fact a forgery. So, first of all, there's a problem with the date. I'm quoting class when he says, repeatedly, a very unusual date format, a hybrid combination of civilian and military formats with a superfluous comma is used. That is to say, when you look at the way the dates are written in the document, this does not follow the format that is normally used in other declassified secret documents from that era. Specifically, after the month, there's not supposed to be a comma. And, and this is and actually that, one of the, the few areas where, I mean, we've looked at so many documents over the years. This is one of the things that I think jumped out at me. The fact that there's that comma there. And also, it says, on 07 July, comma, 1947. And that doesn't look right. That 07, I hadn't seen that before in any kind of actual official document. And that was the next thing that class mentions, is the zero in front of the single digit dates. So exactly as you're saying, he's like, not only is there an extra comma, but there is this zero that isn't actually part of official documents. And this is the thing about bureaucracy, right? Is that they have very specific rules about how these memos have to be written. Yeah. And in part, this now, is why. Well, exactly. And this then gives future people in the future the tools to determine whether these documents are legitimate or not. Maybe the biggest problem, though, with the document is Harry Truman's signature. Harry Truman's signature is exactly, and I mean exactly, like a signature on a document that was, in fact, released to the public that he had done a few weeks earlier. It is so exact that even the scratch marks made by the photocopy are part of the MJ-12 document. Now, right. I don't need to tell you that no two signatures by, by your own hand are ever going to be identical. But let's imagine in some amazing coincidence that we do happen to find, in fact, that this was, you know, that, there, that it could be possible you're not going to get errant scratch marks in exactly the same places as you would from the one that was officially released. And class suggests that basically what's happened is the signature was cut out, glued onto this fake document, and then photocopied. Yep. And so it looks, this is like old-fashioned plagiarism, it looks like uh, Harry Truman's signature because it is Harry Truman's signature, but from a different document. 
there's a lot of other issues though. Earlier, because Nathan is such a geek, what did you call Roswell? Roswell Army Airfield. That's because Nathan is a geek and knows this stuff. In the document though, it is Roswell Army Air Base. Right, which wouldn't have been accurate at that time. Correct, because it's what is, well, okay, you tell us, because you're the, you're the nerd who knows all this stuff. Well, I mean, there was so much reorganization going on. We'll get into this in a future episode when I talk about the difference between a P-51 and an F-51. But oh, there, there had been a lot of sort of consolidation, <laughs> and the Air Force was sort of becoming its own separate like arm of the military, and so they were... They well, were, it was part of the army, right? Yeah, at, at this point. But that wasn't always going to be the case. And so the, the way that Air Force bases are referenced changes throughout history. And the Majestic 12 documents use the wrong term. Right. The term that is correct later, right, but is not correct at the But not at the, at the time. time. Not the time when not these are the... alleged to have been written. Exactly. And somebody... Like, I'll give you an example. Like... Let's say you were trying to create a document about Puff Daddy. Okay. And you referred to him as Diddy but at a time before he had become known as Diddy and was still Puff Daddy, then you'd know, well, this is, this is truly, surely Not inaccurate. legit, right? Yeah. Exactly. There are maybe slightly less compelling pieces of evidence. There's the incorrect use of certain terms. So class notes that it, the document uses media when it would have been press at the time, extraterrestrial instead of alien. Like, yeah. that wasn't how aliens were referred to back then. And so it's now, really unusual that that would have been in there. I don't know why this is the thing that excites me most about this forensic analysis, but it turns out that there is a raised eye, like the letter I, in a bunch of the stamps that say, like, top secret or classified, whatever. There's a raised letter I in that, which is the same as the return address on Moore's letters that he sends out. Now, which again, just, just to remind people that Moore was one of the people who claims that he received this. Right. So when he then is later sending these documents to other people to tell them, look, I've got this insider information, there are typographical clues that would should not be there. It yeah. would be highly unlikely that there would be this raised eye in, you know, an official government stamp and more stamp. Yeah. In so, fact, so what that means is reason... that those stamps aren't like the government isn't going to have to put individual letters into a stamp to spell classified and then stamp it. They're going to have a stamp that just says classified. Right. But exactly. because that because that error in the eye is the same in all of the different stamps. It means that that individual rubber letter I has been used in those stamps, which means that this was not a government stamp. Exactly. Exactly. That is the MJ-12 document, but there was also the Coulter Twining memo, which was then reviewed by the National Archives, and they find all these problems with the Coulter Twining memo. It is printed on the wrong type of onion skin paper. <laughs> Apparently, there's multiple versions of like types of paper, which having been a fan of the sitcom The Office, I should probably know. Onion skin is one type, and but there are many types of onion skin, and they had used the wrong onion skin. 
there was no watermark, which would have been part of official memos. There's like an eagle watermark in uh, on the memos that would have been written by the secretary to the president. He would have used this eagle watermark paper. But also, Coulter, who was supposed to have written the memo, wasn't in the country mm -hmm. at the time of the writing of the memo. The memo is labeled top secret restricted information, but that designation does not come into use until Nixon's time. And there's an earlier version of how top secret was standardized as a letterhead at the time of Truman and Eisenhower. It's so another again, Puff Daddy P. Diddy situation. Exactly. Maybe this is not the most convincing piece of evidence, but the paper was also folded a number of times. And the suggestion is that Moore, Friedman, and Shindera actually smuggled it into the National Archives, where they then, quote unquote, discover it and, you know, and reveal it to, to the public. So a kind of a forensic analysis of these documents suggests that one of the most crucial pieces of evidence that we have for MJ-12, which is the document itself, is most likely a forgery. And that then makes the other evidence, for me, a lot less compelling. The one claim that is countered when you suggest the MJ-12 documents are most likely forgeries is, well, let me see, Nathan, could you guess? What would be the counterclaim to that? I, I could hear someone in my head saying, oh, those errors are there on purpose to throw you off the track so that you don't think it's real when it is real, which is, is not very convincing to me. Uh, and the other thing uh, is more going to say that, okay, well, these are like, I made these copies. Sure, I made these copies, but I still had the original somewhere. Well, in fact, he says exactly that. He says, oh, well, that's why the stamp is wrong and this and that, right? But remember that they first get the pictures of the MJ-12 documents. So they should actually, and these errors are in those pictures. Mm -hmm. They're not in the memo that he apparently then rewrites to show people. So kind of summarizing your two points, or maybe more the first one, the idea sometimes is that, well, of course, the United States government or agencies within it would say this is a fake document precisely because it's real. Mm -hmm. Right. So if there is this vast conspiracy to hide the existence of extraterrestrials and it is leaked, then it seems plausible that agency members within, say, the CIA would say, yeah, well, that's just bogus. That's not true. What's interesting is I guess there's still a certain degree of trustworthiness slash naivete in both the government and its citizens, because when you have revelations like COINTELPRO, MKUltra, Watergate, the response has not been, oh, those are fake. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, like when the government is caught, or again, I keep saying the government, when agencies within the American government are caught with their pants down, they kind of admit it. You know, they're like, OK, OK, we don't do it anymore. You know, uh, MKUltra was something we used to do. And that was probably not true at the time that they were making those statements. Some of the projects kept going. And yet they didn't deny the validity of the documents themselves. Nixon doesn't suggest that the tapes of him talking in the White House have been some elaborate hoax. You could imagine them saying this, but they don't. They, so, they would today. Yeah, they might. They might. But at the time, we have 
uh, we have the precedent for really damaging information actually once it has been released by whistleblowers by people on the inside when it came to the surface denial was not the approach that the united states government took so that is again it's very circumstantial but it feels like another piece in relation to this other stuff where i'm like i'm i'm not sure if that counterclaim holds as much water given the fact that we have these forgeries and or evidence for the forgeries. Now, there's another issue with the whole Majestic 12 premise, which is that this is based on Roswell. And ah. I'm, I'm not going to go into detail because we're going to do an entire episode on this, on my issues with the Roswell story. Well, that's good. Uh, but I, I think we're going to encounter some right now because I want to provide an alternative timeline. We started with the FBI receiving the documents in 1988. Oh, by the way, the FBI has sent these documents to verify, like these documents are circulating around and some concerned citizens are like, hold on a second, is this legit secret stuff? Because if it is, we don't wanna mess with it. Like we don't wanna be involved in this. And so they sent the documents to the FBI and the FBI is like, no, they are total bogus. And one of the problems I have in reading them is that the version I have has bogus written all <laughs> yeah. over it in a black Sharpie that obscures a bunch of you know good sentences that I could have brought into the podcast. They're also not the only agency to look at these documents within the government and suggest, no, these are, these are not legitimate secret documents. So at this point, the listeners might be saying, how did Lee and Nathan get so naive about what the government would get up to? Like, okay. <laughs> why are they trusting the government so much? Well, here's the thing. I think you're about to tell another version of this story in which it turns out that the problem isn't that we are trusting the government too much, but that the story that we're about to tell makes the government in a way look even shadier and sketchier. That's right. That is our motto at the Uncover Up. You think it's bad. We know it's worse, it's worse than that. It's worse than that. Here's the deal. And I come back to one of our favorite authors, Curtis Peebles' book, Watch the Skies, is a real goldmine of critical, useful, historical information on the development of the UFO myth as we encounter it today. According to Peebles, Sergeant Richard Doty had a working relationship with Richard Moore by 1981. Now, for longtime listeners, this will be a bombshell, but not every I'm not going to trust that everybody's been listening to us since day one. So, Nathan, give us a quick summary on Sergeant Richard Doty. Oh, boy. So Doty is a, a special agent for the Air Force, and he specializes in disinformation. And when Paul Benowitz, who was uh, somebody who's come up in a bunch of episodes, he was like a UFO researcher, when he stumbles across some top-secret American Air Force stuff, the Air Force sends Doty to Benowitz to try to neutralize him. And the method that Doty uses is to feed Benowitz disinformation, telling him all this stuff about secret underground alien bases and imminent alien invasions and alien hybrids, to the point where Benowitz, who is already kind of primed to believe this stuff, he just completely loses it and is eventually institutionalized. And what you can only call a very successful operation. That's right. And well, you can call it other things, I guess. Monstrous, okay. terrible. Well, Doty is apparently not just 
messing with Benowitz. Doty is interested in disinforming the UFO community at large. The problem, apparently, is that the worry seems to be within the Air Force, potentially the CIA, people involved in these kinds of issues of are there aliens or we're dealing with secret tech. The worry is that the UFO community is accidentally, even unbeknownst to themselves, revealing secret information to the public because they're going out and, and this is maybe exactly what Benowitz did. They go out with cameras and find stuff that they shouldn't be finding, like, say, you know, a crashed airplane that was part of a secret project. And Benowitz thinks, oh, well, this is evidence for UFOs. The Air Force is like, oh, my goodness, he's encountered one of these secret projects. If this gets out there, the Russians are going to put two and two together and they're going right. to get inside. Because the, the Russians are going to know that it's not a UFO. The Russians are going to know it's some new stealth fighter prototype. Right. So that's the worry, apparently, that leads to Doty being part of a disinformation campaign and also trying to disinform the larger UFO community so that they don't actually accidentally reveal stuff that's secret and sensitive, but that they just start spewing nonsense. And there's another so, reason to do it as well. And mm -hmm. that's a curiosity to see how these ideas can be used to manipulate populations. Yeah, Because exactly. this is something that the American government, the CIA in particular, was very worried that the Soviets would get up to, that they right. would use UFO conspiracies to try to influence the American population. And yeah. we're also very interested to see, going back all the way to the 1950s, hey, could we do something like that? Doty then is not just infiltrating or messing with Benowitz. He's actually trying to infiltrate the larger UFO community as well. And one person who is in the larger UFO community is William Moore. He is on the board of ARPO. He's, he's a player in the scene. And here I'm going to read you something from a lovely article written by Robert Skvarla. It was actually an article written about UFO cover-up, question mark, live exclamation mark. Thank you. <laughs> he writes, Dodi wanted Moore to use his contacts in the UFO community to spread disinformation. The Air Force believed some American ufologists were leaking classified defense secrets related to tests of so-called black projects, military projects the government will not acknowledge publicly or include in defense appropriation bills. And they were concerned with one man in particular, Paul Benowitz. Okay, so Dodi is trying to disinform Paul Benowitz. He's going to use William Moore as part of this. This is the way Dodi apparently operates. He says, listen, you tell me what you guys think is going on in the UFO community, you tell me what you think is going on, and hush, hush, I'll give you the real deal. Now, in terms of a disinformation campaign, if the Air Force, say, is worried about people leaking information about secret projects, the, that first part of the equation makes a lot of sense. Tell me what you guys think is going on. That essentially tells Doty, uh-oh, you know, who is accidentally actually getting onto something for real? And then the disinformation thing is when he then turns around and says, well, I'll give you the real dirt. So the first piece of quote unquote real dirt that William Moore receives from Doty is another set of documents called Project Aquarius. Project Aquarius has a lot of stuff in it, but also has a mention of MJ-12. So that is apparently 
the first time MJ-12 emerges. By 82 already, Moore is hired by a California television station as a consultant on UFOs. Now, he brings two of his buddies along, Shandera and Friedman, the guys who we talked about in with response to the culture twining memo, as, as well as the big reveal of the MJ-12 documents. They supply, more in particular, sort of in the background, supply the TV station with the Aquarius documents. In 1983, Dodie also contacts Linda Moulton Howe and lets her see some of these documents, probably Project Aquarius documents. Now, who was Linda Moulton Howe? She was a filmmaker and a ufologist, and she was sort of instrumental in bringing the cattle mutilation phenomenon out into the public eye and also kind of framed it as a as UFO adjacent. Right. So she being part of the scene is another contact, essentially, for Dodie to spread this information into the larger UFO community. He's just poisoning the well. That's what's happening here. Dodie is just spreading disinformation amongst people who, for the most part, while there's some scammers in there, for the most part, these are people who want to know the truth. And he's using them. He's using their skepticism against them. And yet this is where my confusion emerges, because while Linda Moulton Howe is a believer, while Benowitz is obviously a believer, I don't think that William Moore Stanton Friedman or Jamie Shandera are believers. They seem to go along with Dodie's hoax. Now, I don't know if Dodie knows this, but it seems as though they're a bit like, all right, so you're giving us insider information. They then turn around to the UFO community with this quote unquote insider information, which really elevates them in status. I mean, again, in 1988, two of them are on national television live as the centerpiece of that show. And it seems very much like Moore, Shandera, and Friedman generate the culture twining memo that they quote unquote discover in the National Archives. So they seem not to be just dupes. They seem to have a- They're scammers. I think they're scammers. Right. Like when it comes down to it, I think that they're in on Dodie's hoax, even if Dodie himself doesn't necessarily know it. And this is where I think we've landed. We are watching the evolution of this hoax from a disinformation campaign that begins it in 1981 to by the time we get to 1984 and they quote unquote receive the MJ-12 documents in a manila envelope, they're fully running with this scam, and they are making a name for themselves, or an even bigger name for themselves, within the UFO community as a result. They, of course, have the deep throat contact on the inside. They're actually talking to Dodie. So they do, in fact, have this contact. It's not as though, you know, they're just like writing documents and pretending they've got somebody in the Air Force. No, no, they actually have somebody in the Air Force, and this opens doors to you know, the rest of the scene and, and greater things like television. To sum up here, what we have basically is an ecosystem of scams and disinformation. That's right. That's what this is. And in fact, you said it goes back to the early 80s. It goes back to 1948 because the entire foundation that all of this rests on, the aliens that have crashed, the, the autopsies, the taking them to secret bases, all of that 
That starts as a scam in 1948 in Aztec, New Mexico. But that is something that we'll leave for another podcast. You know, in, in, when you said that, I realized I haven't mentioned one of the biggest indictments against William Moore. In 1980, he had co-authored a book with Charles Berlitz called The Roswell Incident, which was is what generates the modern mythology around Roswell. And what Nathan is saying there, the story is very much lifted from a book that was written in 1948. A lot of the elements actually come out of this other story. Which was part of a scam and a hoax. But we'll get to that later. Right. Well, and interestingly, the MJ-12 documents seem to focus mostly on Roswell, which if you're flogging a book about the Roswell incident, seems awfully self-serving convenient. Yes, right? Mm -hmm. okay. uh, it's frustrating. We just want to know the truth. And we have to like wade through waist deep, uh, just again, opportunists and disinformationists. And it's, it's very, very irritating. But I can also see how a younger you or younger me confronted with this kind of information of government documents, Air Force, CIA, Area 51 insiders, first person accounts that seem really both good and unexplainable combined to generate a sense that there really must be something going on. Victor Marchetti, I know that I started by saying it's great to have an insider whistleblower. And I also said that, look, he's just speculating. He's not suggesting that this is, he has any insider knowledge about aliens, but Marchetti has a very dark history after his time at the CIA, which includes publishing with very far right-wing outfits, Holocaust-denying, white supremacist, neo-Nazi outfits. Now, this is going to foreshadow another topic we're going to have to talk about, which is the, the Nazi problem within the later UFO community. We've really gone very far from the 1950s ski suits. 